they need to start believing in something. You know, we send them an invitation with the promise that we're going to pick them up with elves, and we pick them up with elves, and we promise them that they're going to take a flight, and they take a flight. So we start out with promises that we know we're going to keep, and we work very hard to make sure we deliver on each of those promises. And so the message we try to instill in these children is believe in in what can happen in your life. It doesn't have to be what you're experiencing today. My understanding is in the last 45 years, our prison population has, our jail and prison population, has grown by over 700%. Um, oh, he's so very practical there. I mean, he was, you know, doing the practical things, you know, <laughs> as, as, you know, he's advanced thinking in there. Um, you know, next year, I read that it's the 100th anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb. Can you give us a little background on that? How, how Who stumbled on it? I, I don't really know. Well, um, um, so back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, lots of Europeans were had come to Egypt, um, most especially um, funded by wealthy people like Lord Carnarvon. That's Steve Paul, U.S. Attorney Nick Brown, and National Geographic editor and archaeologist Ann Williams. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Looks like we may be having a white Christmas this year, followed by some pretty cold temperatures. Now, not only do we have to be worrying about the variant that's popped up again, but also about driving to your holiday gatherings around Puget Sound. So be careful. We have three amazing guests today. Leading off will be Steve Paul of Spokane. He becomes Chief Elf Bernie each year at this time of year. He is once again leading the 25th anniversary of the Spokane Fantasy Flight to the North Pole that carries orphans and foster children aboard an Alaska Airlines 737-900 jet. This, to me, is the greatest Christmas story that you've never heard. Nick Brown, U.S. Attorney for Western Washington, was sworn into office in early October. Mr. Brown, age 44, is one of the youngest top federal prosecutors to be appointed ever in Western Washington and is the first African-American. What does a U.S. attorney actually do? What are his responsibilities? Mr. Brown explains that to us today. Last but not least, National Geographic editor and archaeologist Ann Williams will share some incredible stories of how archaeologists have uncovered the clues that illuminate our past. She focuses on terracotta warriors, escorting China's first emperor into the afterlife, and uh, much more, but she specializes in ancient Egypt. And before we get into today's show, I just want to remind you that Reigniting You with Lisa Downs airs Mondays at 3 o'clock p.m. right here on Kixie. If you are looking to make a career change or transition into retirement or semi-retirement, this is what she discusses with guests and experts. Strongly advise that you tune in to Reigniting You with Lisa Downs, the greatest Christmas story that you've never heard with Steve Paul coming up next. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? 
Captain Sully, or a pilot on their maiden flight. If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Now, Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. I believe that this is the greatest Christmas story you've never heard. After you hear this interview, you can be the judge of that. The world needs a good Christmas this year, enthused Steve Paul, who becomes Chief Elf Bernie each year at this time, as he shared his excitement at the approaching 25th anniversary of the Spokane Fantasy Flight to the North Pole that carries orphans and foster children aboard an Alaska Airlines 737-900 from Spokane, to visit Santa. Those words were courtesy of Mike Flynn. I read it from his column, Flynn's Harp, and I'm going to tell you how you can get access to his electronic newsletter after the interview. So let's just get right to my interview with Steve Paul, who's the executive director of this effort that occurs every year around this time. The flight this year happened on December 11th. How did the Alaska Airlines Santa fantasy flight get started? So it really didn't start with Alaska. It actually started with United Airlines in 1997 uh, by the gate agent Leslie Lathrop, L-A-T-H-R-O-P, and Mel Lubick, L-U-B-E-C-K. And they had gone to what United Airlines had called a fantasy flight boot camp on the East Coast. And they were trying to encourage their local stations to come up with some way to involve the community for some Christmas charity work. And on their flight, they talked about what they could do in Spokane. Uh, And it was in August of 1997. And they thought, well, it'll take us a year to come up with something. And um, they chose to leap ahead and throw uh, the first fantasy flight uh, in the lower concourse of the of the AB terminal at Spokane Airport. Small, small conference room, small party, uh, used the plane, were able to, had uh, deadheaded, ended its day in Spokane, and were able to um, produce the first event, and it has grown since then. In 2000, and actually in the year 2000, I got involved as a business traveler uh, that was how they raised funds, was they reached out to business travelers uh, and different companies as they came through and solicited donations. I was a traveler moving from the Midwest looking for a new nonprofit to get involved with because that's just one of my business practices. I always get involved with the community nonprofit as part of my personal pay it forward. So I was looking for something in Spokane and found 
this group of ladies and said, listen, I think I can use my business acumen to sort of help you guys grow this thing, get, get a little more structure. So we worked together, and in 2006, they asked me to shepherd the program forward and be the director. And so 2007 was my first flight with United, and the plane did not show up. And because I am not an airline industry expert, I asked them, so what do you do when you've got 200 people on one side of the airport that need to get to a North Pole on the other side of the airport with no vehicle to get there? Uh, We ended up using school buses on the runway, uh, transported by police through the tarmac, and um, it worked because the flashing lights, the buses fogged up, looked like a magic bus, seemed to work that year. But I approached uh, American in 2008 and said, I need a better, reliable transportation. Uh, They were not interested. Uh, We approached Southwest. They were not interested. I had contacts in my personal neighborhood that are pilots and uh, flight attendants with Alaska. So I said, could you put me in contact with someone in maybe the marketing department? I got the senior VP of marketing, discussed it, took one hour, called me back and said, you've got a plane and oh, by the way, we're going to go in the air. We're going to fly. We're going to give you one big enough that everybody can get on and we can take off. So in wow. 2008, we started with Alaska, and we've been with them ever since for 14 years. Okay, you just had a recent flight, the 25th flight on December 11th. Could you tell us just from the beginning when the kids show up at the tarmac and, and how it all goes for that evening? I read it uh, about it, and I just think it's a phenomenal story. So we work with the local social agencies to select the children. We do not personally as an organization do that. Um, they are brought from all the various shelters to a single location where I show up as Bernie uh, and escort them out to uh, the Alaska check-in Terminal C where they meet their one uh, personal elf that's been selected for each of them. Some children have two. Uh, They are put into five teams of colors, blue, green, orange, red, and yellow, and they move through their fantasy adventure with that. They receive a T-shirt. They uh, get their passport because, of course, it's international travel. So you have to have the North Pole passport. They of go course. TSA. Yeah, you can't forget that. They go through TSA, where TSA this year, uh, everyone was checked. Uh, their hands were swabbed and validated with the TSA validation. And they were checking for magic, is how it was explained to the children take the passport uh, and their elf upstairs to the upper concourse where their passport is validated. We make sure they've got their photo ID, they've got signatures, and it is stamped valid for entry. Uh, They then migrate over to the ticket authorization where their ticket is validated that they are also approved for the flight home to the North Pole versus uh, taking the magic transporter, which is those elves that cannot fly and they must not be on the plane. They have to go to the North Pole a different way. Uh, then there's there's a backpack at the gate. There's games to play. Uh, there's an orchestra that plays a chicken dance. They all get to dance together. Uh, and then they are boarded onto the Alaska Flight 1225, which is an awaiting brand-new 737-900 that was co-branded this year with Starbucks called uh, Marrier Together. 
like. Uh, and uh, we have the plane completely laid out so that no child is at a window. Uh, that's part of the magic trick that we do. Uh, we, um, we take the um, light, has magic wand, it has a magic chant, uh, it has a magic crew uh, who then take the flight. We take off. Once we reach cruising altitude, which is about 10,000 feet, uh, we go through uh, a magic chant, and we say it three times with the window shade lowered because, of course, if you can figure out how to get to the North Pole, everyone else would too, and then the secret would be gone. So we have to keep the North Pole secret so the window shades are shut. After the chant three times, the pilot makes a nose-up maneuver with full-thrust engines, and we crest up and then loop back down. So you feel sort of like you've crossed through a barrier. Uh, that is the pilot's opportunity to try to throw me to the ground uh, while we're testing. That is the personal thing we have. He hasn't won yet, but he keeps trying. Uh, and when we come down to the North Pole, we have landed. Uh, the red carpet is out, and the elves that did not fly, plus another 50 or 60, are waiting on the red carpet to welcome us into the North Pole. What I read is that you then go over to a hangar, and then they, the kids then they right. come off the plane and go into a hangar, and that's where the North Pole is. Right. This hangar is a large, uh, I would call it a sound studio. It's an enormous building that is completely transformed with stage lighting and carpeting and walls and curtains and booths and stations, and um, it's... It's about $150,000 worth of expense putting together this massive soundstage that is the North Pole. That's tremendous. Play. Uh, in other non-pandemic years, we have a live reindeer. He's in the reindeer barn. Uh, we have the Polar Express train. So we have a, a large-sized train that goes around a magic mountain, and when it comes back, it has a bag of personal care items, soap and shampoo and toothpaste, and they have a golden ticket. Um, the whole event is around giving these children who have a big heart but just have a lot of darkness around it, um, they, uh, they need to start believing in something. You know, we send them an invitation with the promise that we're going to pick them up with elves, and we pick them up with elves. And we promise them that they're going to take a flight, and they take a flight. So we start out with promises that we know we're going to keep, and we work very hard to make sure we deliver on each of those promises. And so the message we try to instill in these children is believe in, in what can happen in your life. It doesn't have to be what you're experiencing today. You've been doing this 25 years, and um, that would put some of the children that were on the flights first they're in their early to mid-30s, maybe. Has anybody ever yeah. come back and uh, given back or done anything, a story maybe that uh, maybe that changed the trajectory of someone? Absolutely. So this year, um, as part of the North Pole, we have a DJ who jams to the music. Jams, the elf, was a child who visited in 2002. He, is a, he was a foster child, and he speaks now. You know, one of the things you have to realize is when you ask a child from this environment to remember 
they don't just remember that good incident. That memory is wrapped around a whole lot of bad. And so it does take some processing time to sort of, for the brain to sort of whittle out those happy moments from all of the sad. But um, he has done that. He now, every time he comes to the fantasy flight, this is his third time. He remembers more, he says more things just trigger more memories now. But the memory he had first that he carried with him forever is as part of the fantasy flight, they received a bag, and in the early days, they were handmade ripstop bags, big parachute-quality bags. And when foster kids are typically moved from home to home, they get a garbage sack. And he always carried his fantasy flight bag from home to home until he was 18 when he was thrown out on the street because he aged out. Mm. And he said to this day, that bag, every time he sees one of those bags, he remembers how fortunate he was that he had the bag. Now he remembers other parts of it. So as part of Noah's story, we actually make sure that the kids get multiples of those bags. We now purchase them. Uh, they are industrial strength. They get their Santa gift in one of those bags. They get Mrs. Claus's surprise at the end of the night, which is a pillow with a colored pillowcase that matches their team color, a warm fleece blanket, and the hard copy of the Polar Express book, which she reads to all of us. And at the end of the story, as you know, the little boy gets the sleigh bell under the tree because it fell out of his pocket. Every elf has a velvet bag with an actual number one chrome sleigh bell on a leather tangle, or harness that tell them to always believe. Fabulous. Uh, how many businesses are involved in this? I mean, this sounds, and it doesn't sound, it is so involved. Every detail that you think through on this is remarkable. You could just take them up on a flight and put them back in, which would be enough, or, you know, come back down to the tarmac. But the experience from when they get to the airport till you come back, then go into the hangar, it's just remarkable all the attention to detail that you and others have thought about. It, it is, you know, I am a detailist. I'm a, uh, I, I believe in memories. You know, most of us as adults, the memory that is most deep set, if you think about your childhood, you remember your first Christmas or the first Christmas you remember as a child. Those memories are permanent. And my thought was when they asked me to leave this is these are children whose first Christmas memories are in a shelter or in the backseat of a car or maybe, you know, under a bridge. And what if we could give them a memory that they'll have to work to remember when they're adults of this magical Christmas when I went to the North Pole? That, to me, is the best gift I can give an adult is a memory in their childhood of a happy Christmas. Well, one of the best, it's not a story, it's reality that I've ever heard of. And I talked to Mike about it. He sent me his harp, you know, his newsletter. And I read it and I was, oh my gosh, this is, it's the best story I've never heard of. And I don't, I even talked to a friend in Spokane who grew up there. And I told him about this. And I said, do you guys, do you know anything about this? He said, no. And I said, even in Spokane? So 
I find that interesting that this hasn't received more coverage. I, maybe you're not seeking that. I'm not saying you are. But nonetheless, it's such a wonderful story that, um, again, I, I would have thought it would have been uh, circulated to a greater extent. So you bring up the hardest challenge being the CEO of a charity is publicity. We are, as I am very proud to say, the best kept secret in the world. Definitely in Spokane. If media wants to come and cover our event as a story, I'm extremely interested and work diligently to pull that forward. If they want to show up and talk about the artificial North Pole at the Spokane airport, I'm not interested. I, I, I don't need news. I need stories told. Okay. Tell me, if you listen to this entire interview... Was I right? This is one of the best Christmas stories that you've never heard before. My thanks to Chief Elf, Bernie, but also to Steve Paul, who makes this really happen. You can tell the organization that pulling something like this off takes. And again, I got this information from a column by Mike Flynn. It's called Flynn's Harp. And if you would like to get a free electronic subscription, all you need to do is email... Mike at MikeFlynn.com. That's Mike at MikeFlynn.com. Flynn, F-L-Y-N-N. You probably recognize the name Mike Flynn. He's the former publisher and editor of the Puget Sound Business Journal. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. U.S. Attorney for Western Washington, was sworn into office in early October. Mr. Brown, age 44, is one of the youngest top federal prosecutors to be appointed ever in Western Washington and the first African-American to hold such a position. He was nominated by President Joe Biden and then confirmed by the Senate. He strongly believes racial and social inequities have been fed by a sort of inertia where law enforcement and line prosecutors do what they do because that's the way it's always been done in the past. As counsel to Governor Jay Inslee, Nick Brown played a key role in the governor's decision to place a moratorium on the death penalty in Washington in 2014. Let's pick up with my interview with Nick. We were talking about unintended consequences of mass incarcerations. And one of your big issues I read in the Seattle Times interview you had about uh, mass incarcerations, I guess, not only in this state, but across the country. But now that you are uh, in your position now, you want to really take that on. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, in terms of priorities, I think about it in a few different ways. I mean, one, we are part of the Department of Justice. You know, every administration 
has a particular focus or emphasis or policies that impact the work that all of the 93 U.S. attorneys' offices in the country work on. Uh, so certainly we take a lot of guidance from them. Um, you know, then just being here and knowing these communities and our folks working with both community folks and law enforcement offices in this in this state or in this district, you know, we're more uniquely attuned to the issues that are affecting um, Western Washington specifically. Um, and those are different in large part from some of the issues faced in different jurisdictions. But overall, arching that, you know, I definitely want our um, line attorneys to be thinking more broadly about, you know, what does it mean to have a just sentence and what sort of punishment is appropriate in every case. And they have been thinking about that. I know how hard and how um, deliberative people are here, having worked here previously. But I do think that, you know, over the last 10 years or so, we have just seen renewed attention around the larger systemic issues facing um, American justice system. And, you know, I certainly feel like there is immense good being done by prosecutors, by law enforcement in terms of the day-to-day -day work that we do. But I also want people to acknowledge that there are immense problems with our system. Um, and, you know, if you look at America writ large in terms of the number of people we incarcerate, the type of people we incarcerate, the length of sentences, they're widely out of whack in terms of how the rest of the world treats the exact same sort of conduct. Um, and, you know, every country obviously is different, has its unique issues and culture. But my sort of core feeling is that we could approach our justice um, work in a very different way and, and be more um, aware of the, the downstream effects of the work that we do, because um, I don't think we want to continue a lot of our past practices that have led to mass incarceration, that have led to disenfranchised communities, usually the poor, underserved, and minority communities. Um, and I just want us to be more aware of those issues and realizing that we can make a difference in terms of how we approach cases and prioritize cases and work with law enforcement to try to, you know, to slow the, the tide um, of that of that trend over the last however many years in our justice system. I read uh, recently that uh, in the United States in the 1970s, we incarcerated about a half a million people. And today it's well over two million. Is that anywhere close? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the specific stat you're citing to, but I my understanding is in the last 45 years, our prison population has, or jail and prison population, has grown by over 700 percent. 700 percent. You know, in in 1980, um, we incarcerated approximately 41,000 people for drug offenses in America. Uh, in 2019, that was 430,000. You know, the average time for a federal drug offense uh, used to be um, uh, in in the 80s about 22 months, so less than two years. By 2004, that number had leapt to 62 months in prison. Um, and we, we've seen, um, you know, following the real high-level crime rates that we had in the 80s and 90s, a real reaction to uh, relying on mandatory minimum sentences, um, you know, charging and, and prosecuting the full extent of the law and advocating for those sentences. Um, we've seen just a real reliance on those on those practices, but we haven't seen a dramatic um, uh, positive benefit in the long term in terms of crime rates. And, you know, 
what I want people both who work here and in the public to realize is that, you know, approximately 95% of people who are in prison will one day get out and they will be back into the community. And we have to be thinking very deliberately about how they're going to come out, what they've been through, how long they've been through, and what is their likelihood of success when they get back in the community. And, you know, in many ways, some of the more draconian sentences we've used in the past have not made us safer. Um, They eliminate a a part-time problem, but not a long-term solution. And I just really believe that we cannot incarcerate our way out of problems. You know, incarceration is part of the uh, tools that we have to use. Um, You know, we bring cases where we believe prison time is appropriate and necessary and certainly support that work. But it is only part of the puzzle, and and there are more systemic um, things that we could be addressing to to make our community safer, which is really our goal as prosecutors. I guess what you're saying is that if someone is serving in prison for 25 years, he or she is going to have a difficult time getting a job at Amazon. Well, yeah, and virtual impossibility. Exactly. Um, Just, you know what I mean? It it really is. And uh, how about private prisons? Do you think we should do away with those entirely? Um, you know, I, I know private prisons have become a real sort of popular area for advocates, community advocates to to focus their attention on. And I certainly get that. There's something intuitively very bothersome, to put it lightly, about the idea that people are profiting by locking other people up. Um, and that you know, intuitively bothers me uh, immensely. Um, So I certainly get the focus. Uh, On the other hand, I think that the issues that people in the sort of justice reform or advocacy um, mindset, the issues that they care about translate both private and public facilities. And private facilities make up a tiny fraction of the overall um, facilities that we use to, to incarcerate people. And so I don't know at least my sort of view is the attention that we put on private prisons as a as a problem is not proportional to the scope of the problem. Um, and again, I, I get the reason why people are bothered by it, but I don't think it's it's where we should be focusing all of our energy. Fair enough. Uh, you mentioned some countries that do it better, that you feel uh, handle crime and things like that better. Could you name a few and, and what they do that we don't do? Yeah, and uh, you know, I'm very mindful that just because there's different practices and different numbers in other places doesn't mean that those things translate here as easily. Um but I, you know, I was reading a report um just last week um that was uh it was it's somewhat dated now. Um but I think it was in the early 2000s. Um there was a point in time where where Germany had um I think less than a hundred people who are currently in in prison in Germany for um, for fifteen year sentences or more. So you know, fifteen year sentences are something that state and federal prosecutors dole out in America with some consistency. Um, you know, the average drug sentence in the Netherlands was something like eighteen months. Um, and so, if you look at um, certainly some of the European countries just in terms of their prison policies, um, they do it differently. Uh, And they also do it differently for violent offenses. Um, You know, when we talk about reform, we often focus on sort of the inequities that come from our drug system, which I certainly get. 
Um, but if we're really going to start tackling the issues, we also have to look closely at our violent offenses as well and, and just really analyze, our, are we making our community safers by incredibly lengthy sentences? Sometimes I think the answer is yes. Sometimes absolutely people who do those offenses um, need a, a lengthy sentence to protect the community. Um, but oftentimes I don't think that they do. And certainly we're out of whack with most of most of Europe, um, frankly, many other uh, countries outside of Europe, Canada as well. Um, and it's not only in their prison policy, it's, you know, in terms of how they police, um, you know, in England, most police officers don't carry firearms um, because they don't need it. Um, here, we could not ask law enforcement to do that because so many people that they encounter and much more than they used to are carrying firearms as well. And that just increases the likelihood of violence. But I do think we sort of should look both in our, our sentencing policies as well as our policing policies and just be open to the idea that we're not doing it as well as we could be and then try to adopt programs from other areas that, that might work in these jurisdictions. I guess I've heard the term gun control since the 1960s. And all it's done is quadrupled and become worse than ever than it ever had even been back then. That it's almost trite when you say handgun control. That was the big rallying cry then. Nothing right. like we have now with assault weapons. And I just don't see any way we're ever going to come to grips with this issue. It just continues to the, get kicked down the road and nothing's ever going to happen. Um, do I have a solid foundation to be so cynical? Or do you think that maybe at some point we're going to finally come to grips with this madness of guns in this country? Um, well, you know, I, I need to avoid sort of the larger political conversation around that because it's not my role and our policymakers will set the right policies around community safety, firearm access and those things. What I will tell you that as a prosecutor, um, both previously as a line prosecutor and now as the U.S. attorney for this district, that gun violence uh, really plagues our communities, that we are seeing guns in more hands and more situations than ever before. You know, it used to be that if you did a drug bust that you, you might a company, you know, find a firearm every now and then. Um, you know, we focusing on these trafficking cases would come across firearm seizures uh, as part of our, our drug arrest, um, you know, with, with some inconsistency. Today, they find firearms in almost every stop, in almost every arrest. And, um, you know, those are being trafficked, trafficked and and spread across our communities, um, which makes the communities unsafe, which makes law enforcement's job much more difficult because they never know who they're going to encounter might be armed. Um, and so the scope of the problem is acute. It is very, very serious. And unless something changes, as you know, it's only going to get worse. Um, you know, I certainly think that there are different ways we could approach it from a policy perspective. But um, again, I'm not a policymaker, and I, I hope that our the folks who have those positions are just aware of the scope of the problem so they can devise the right solutions for them. Well, I'm going to save uh, – that's fair enough, of course, and in your position. I really respect that. Uh, but the toughest question I'm saving for last, and that is your experience on Survivor 20-some-odd years ago, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, amazing. I didn't even know it was on that long, but uh, apparently you were a big star on that. Uh, well, I don't know about that. Um, I was on the second season, which um, 
you know, the first season was kind of this um, water cooler show that was aired in the summer because nobody in the network thought people would watch it and became this big, huge hit. And so the second season that I was on um, was really unique in terms of the timing and, and the awareness of it. And it was really the, the dawn of the reality TV era, for better or for worse. And um, so I think my season as a whole remains the most watched Survivor season. And now they're on 41. Um, but I, you know, I kept kind of a low profile intentionally and, um, I never wanted to be survivor to be the most important thing that I did. Um, and I was in law school at the time and dropped out first semester to go do that and had a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, and now it's 21 years ago and my kids like watching the old videos of dad doing that back when I was young and had earrings and doing something fun. Um, but yeah, it's, it was a great experience. But 21 years ago, lots of time has passed since then. That's Nick Brown, U.S. Attorney for Western Washington. Some of the information contained in my interview with Mr. Brown came from an article published by the Seattle Times. So our guest is National Geographic editor and archaeologist Anne R. Williams, and she tells incredible stories of how explorers and archaeologists have uncovered the clues that illuminate our past, and we can certainly learn a lot from uncovering these artifacts. She focuses on terracotta warriors, escorting China's first emperor into the afterlife, and much more. But she specializes in ancient Egypt, and that is what we're going to talk about today. How did you become passionate about becoming an archaeologist? It was by accident, which is uh, the way many things happen in life. I went to college as an English major. I always thought that I wanted to be a writer, but I hated the English department. Um, And I took an archaeology course, Archaeology 101, to, to fulfill a history requirement, and I liked it, and I took another course and another course, and pretty soon I was an archaeology major. Um, and then I went on and got my master's, um, and uh, I eventually did sort of circle back and become a writer, a journalist. But I'm very lucky because that allowed me to stay connected to the field of archaeology. And, uh, and I was very lucky to be at National Geographic that allowed me to connect up with so many great archaeological projects. Wow, that's uh, wonderful. It speaks very well to like higher education, going into a liberal higher education. And you're uh, kind of a poster child for someone who goes there with an open mind and was able to shift your emphasis. Yes, it, it you know it worked out, um, and uh, and I am very pleased with how it worked out. There's one story that I guess opened up your eyes. What is that story? You know, I I, I think it would have to be some of my work in ancient Egypt really become sort of a very serious amateur student of ancient Egypt. Um, And in fact, as we speak, I am writing a book on ancient Egypt. Um, It's going to be a big um, coffee table volume, and I think will be just as wonderful as Lost Cities Ancient Tombs. Um, But anyway, I mean, that's the thing that sort of 
turned it around for me. I was in the Valley of the Kings that King, the night that King Tut was cat scanned. That was my cover story for National Geographic. And that was back in those days. We had a long time to do a deep dive into what it was that we were going to write about. And so I learned everything that you possibly could learn um, that was available to the public um, about King Tut and his life and his times and his family and his dynasty and um, and the new kingdom in general, which was the time of you know great wealth and power in ancient Egypt. Um, and so that has sort of carried forward. Um, I love the discovery of his tomb, and I love it on many different levels. First of all, it's full of beautiful things, um, and I love beautiful things, but it's full of all sorts of very smaller artifacts that really speak to the life of Tutankhamun as a, you know, as a living, breathing teenage person. Um, he went to the afterlife with jars of red wine from his own estates, for instance. Um, he also went to the afterlife with clean sets of linen underwear. Um, one has to think that maybe um, somebody in his family packed those for him. Um, oh, he's so very practical there. I mean, he was, thing. you know, doing the practical things, you know, <laughs> as, as, you know, he's advanced thinking in there. Um, you know, next year, I read that it's the 100th anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb. Can you give us a little background on that? How, how, who stumbled on it? I, I don't really know. Well, um, um, so back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, lots of Europeans were had come to Egypt, um, most especially... Um, funded by wealthy people like Lord Carnarvon, who backed the archaeologist Howard Carter, who ended up discovering King Tut's tomb. And these people were interested in, you know, mostly um, digging up very beautiful things that they could put in their own estates back home and in museums. Um, and in those days, um, of course, things were starting to change at the time when King Tut's tomb was discovered. But, you know, in the olden days, Egypt really allowed a lot of those things to go abroad. Now, you know, a lot of Egyptians want those things back, and I think we can understand that. Um, I sort of think of those things as ambassadors for ancient Egypt um, abroad, and it's a very good thing that they're there. But anyway, so there were lots of these wealthy people in Egypt um, digging here and there and everywhere. Um, there was a man named Theodore Davis who had the concession in the Valley of the Kings, and he found you know, quite a number of interesting things, including something, um, a, a, a cache, um, that had artifacts that bore the name Tutankhamund. Now, that name really had not come down to us in very many sources, because King Tut lived in a, at a time that was had a little bit of political turmoil, um, which is a, a very long story that I won't go into now. Um, but Theodore Davis found this cache and thought he'd found the burial of um, King Tut and declared that there probably wasn't anything else to find in the Valley of the Kings. And so he gave, um, I think his concession came to the end, and Lord Carnarvon, also, you know, working in Egypt, trying to find beautiful things, took over the concession. 
And now, a lot of the great avenue um, that we all have walked on when we visited the Valley of the Kings had been excavated. But there was a little triangle of debris that had been, you know, dug up from the excavation of subsequent tombs. And um, Lord Carnarvon and Howard Carter, his archaeologist, thought, well, you know, we'll just dig through this and see what we can find. And, you know, boom, on the 4th of November, 1922, they stumbled upon um, a stone step, which in the Valley of the Kings always means that you are on the portal to an underground tomb. Um, and so, you know, it was very exciting. Now, when the archaeologists, when they finally got, you know, through all the rubble and got down to the sealed door to the tomb, um, they realized that the tomb had probably been looted twice probably right after King Tot was buried. You can imagine, you know, these, these kings were buried and then the rumors would circulate. You and know. when, 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 when was, was he originally buried? What was the uh, year of approximately? King Tut died in 1322 B.C., okay. so more than 3,000 3, years ago. The, you know, the word probably went out, and we think because of the way the door was sealed, we can sort of see two ceilings. And so, you know, we think looters got in, they got some of the jewelry, they got some of the oils, which is, you know, one of the things that was very valuable in ancient Egypt. But guards must have shooed them away. Um, and in fact, in the corridor leading to um, the, the the chambers in the tomb, Howard Carter found pieces of jewelry that obviously, you know, the thieves had stuffed the jewelry in their pockets of their galabellas as they were running out, and um, and some of the pieces fell off as they were running up the corridor. Um, so fortunately, the tomb is almost intact. And 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 the 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 really goosebump inducing moment is when Howard Carter finally got into the burial chamber and he saw the King Tut's nested sarcophagi are in a great stone. Well, it's uh, his coffins are in a great stone sarcophagus, which is in itself inside four nested burial shrines. And these things are quite spectacular. And Howard Carter saw the first one, saw the door was open, and thought, oh, no, the looters got into the burial. Um, and he opened that door, and he saw the second burial shrine in with an intact seal. And he knew he had an intact royal burial. I mean, you can just imagine. It was almost heart attack time for him. Um, so that was, that was, you know, one of those really um, um, shiver-inducing moments of discovery. Um, and, of course, one of the wonderful things is Howard Carter was a really meticulous person. He really understood that archaeology is a science um, that is involved with the slow, careful accumulation of evidence. And so he, from start to finish, he took a, the better part of a decade cataloging all of the many artifacts, more than 5,000 artifacts that came out of King Tut's tomb. Um, and we have all of his notes, and we have all of his diaries. And 
modern teams at the um, Griffith Institute at the Oxford University in England have digitized all of that. So if you go to the Griffith Institute's website, you can noodle down into everything that Howard Carter wrote down about King Tut's burial, because he was a meticulous note-taker. Um, all of King Tut's artifacts are on their way to the Grand Egyptian Museum, a fabulous state-of-the-art facility right in view of the Giza pyramids. Um, it is a spectacular building. I've um, been there as it was constructed. King Tut is going to have his own suite of rooms um, that sort of um, recreate the ambiance of the tomb um, with all of his 5,000-plus artifacts displayed together for the first time in um, more in 100 years. Now, if you would like to get a copy of Ann Williams' book, all you need to do is Google Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs. That's Ann R. Williams, Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs. There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Bases loaded. The Seattle Mariners trail the L.A. Dodgers by three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. Who would you rather see step up to the plate? Mitch Hanniger or a promising but yet untested player just called up from the minors? If Mitch Hanniger is your choice, that means experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and Adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. On October 4, 1957, the American space program began. That's the day the Soviet Union launched a rocket into space called Sputnik. For 21 nights, the Sputnik satellite was visible to millions of people as it circled the globe. The exultation quickly turned into anxiety. If this rocket could carry a satellite, could it also carry nuclear weapons? Welcome to the arms race and space race. The U.S. immediately created NASA. Over 400,000 individuals and 20,000 American companies participated in the space program, contributing immensely to our high standard of living that we enjoy today. Today I want to talk about visualization techniques as it relates to making presentations or speeches. So you can do it all from memory. It's a really great visualization technique that I learned several years ago, and I use it religiously. I have what I call eight myths about going into small business for yourself. And I'm not going to talk about those myths necessarily. I may make a comment or two as I go along. But my main goal today is to impress upon you how visualization can work. I live in West Seattle, and I have a craftsman home. So let's get on with some of the visualization techniques. I look at my house from the sidewalk, and the first thing I see is someone standing on the roof. 
and he's about ready to jump off. That triggers the first myth that entrepreneurs are huge risk takers. I start walking up the walkway, up the steps, and I see two windows that are boarded up. That triggers myth number two, that most businesses fail because they are undercapitalized. I walk through the door. I see a fat banker sitting there with a cigar and a lot of worker bees in my living room. I hand to him an envelope, and that's my business plan. That triggers another myth that the first thing you do is sit down and write a business plan. Again, I don't want to get into the weeds on that, but I submit that's the last thing you do. I look at my kitchen table, and I see a lot of people arguing. This triggers for me myth number four, the customer is always right. Then I start walking around the corner of the dining room and walk into my office, and I see on the wall a whole bunch of newspapers. That kicks in for me. A while ago, when I was publishing a newspaper, I had a competitor. And that triggers for me that we often hear, which I consider a myth, that uh, watch your competitors like a hawk. I consider competitors to be your best friend. Now I'm walking out to my deck, and I see someone holding a pen. He's in a suit and tie, and he's an attorney. And he wants me to get everything in writing. And a myth that I have is that that is a myth. That's not going to save you. But again, that's getting into the weeds more than I want to now. It's just I'm talking about the visualization techniques. Myth number seven, I am fortunate to have a hot tub. I see a very good friend of mine who always thinks positive thoughts. Sometimes it gets irritating. And that's why I have in my hot tub, he's smiling with his thumbs up, which he loves to do. And this triggers... Always think positive. I submit that you always think worst-case scenario. On to myth number eight. I walk out of my yard into the garage. I open up my trunk and my golf clubs are there. For some reason, this is good for me to remember that myth number eight, follow your passion and the money will follow. I submit that follow your passion will the money follow, not necessarily. So again, I do these for visualization techniques. You can do it your house, your apartment, your car, But give it a shot because it really helps you feel more confident about your subject that you can talk about it in any place. Sometimes there may be a speaker that doesn't show up and you can raise your hand and go, I can do it. And all of a sudden you have an audience. Or maybe sometimes the radio station will call you. Can you make a comment on this, uh, what's going on today? And be ready. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Steve Paul. Uh, I don't think I oversold it when I said that was one of the greatest Christmas stories you've never heard. Also to Nick Brown, U.S. attorney, wishing him well on his new job. And to Ann Williams, who teaches us really the value of exploration and um, how magnificent it really is to put a lot of our world into perspective. And a final Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah. Enjoy this wonderful time of year that we all experience together.